This is the podcast of the German Historical Institute London, a research centre dedicated to supporting and connecting students and scholars from Britain and Germany. The podcast series presents current research in British, German and European history, as well as colonial and global history. For more information on the German Historical Institute London, future events, the GHIL Library, studentships and more podcast episodes, please visit our website at ghil.ac.uk. In this GHIL lecture, Gominda Bambra from the University of Sussex talks about a decolonial project for Europe. There is a disconnection between, on the one hand, Europe regarding colonial history as, quote, the past, unquote, and of little consequence to its contemporary self-understanding, and on the other hand, formerly colonized countries and populations living with the ongoing legacies of that colonial past as a present reality. In this lecture, Bambra argues for a decolonial project for Europe. This is a project that would acknowledge Europe's past as one largely constituted by its colonial activities. Further, it would seek to rethink the idea of, quote, Europe, unquote, and its contemporary relations to the rest of the world on that basis. Gominda K. Bambra is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies at the University of Sussex. She is a Fellow of the British Academy and President of the British Sociological Association. Her publications include Colonialism and Modern Social Theory with John Homewood, and the award-winning Rethinking Modernity, Postcolonialism and the Sociological Imagination. Thank you for the invitation to come and speak with you here today. I'm really looking forward to the discussion that we'll have afterwards. I couldn't start this lecture on a decolonial project for Europe without acknowledging the terrible events that are happening in its eastern reaches. In the talk itself, which comes out of earlier research. I won't be discussing these issues directly, but I'm happy to pick up on them and think them through with you in the Q&A afterwards. What I do want to say is that much of the work that I have done and am doing has focused on European empires outside of Europe. And I guess what the recent events have highlighted with such force is the continuing significance of empires within Europe, notably the Austro-Hungarian, the Ottoman, and obviously the Russian Empire, including possibly a Soviet Empire. And much more work is needed to bring these within a common framework of understanding. While the breakup of the Russian Empire was initially managed in terms of the establishment of the Soviet Union, with its people's republics, its own claims to universality, however flawed, and respect for minority rights, again, however flawed, its eventual dissolution in the late 20th century created and or reasserted a variety of nationality claims similar to those from the breakup of other empires. This then opens up the question of empire, nationalism and minority rights in ways that haven't been explicitly addressed as issues of Europe and within Europe. Except, of course, when they have. And what I mean by this is when they've been addressed in their particularity such as when we discuss the place of Jewish people, of Roma people, of minorities whose position is a consequence of the breakup of internal empires, and of minorities who move to Europe from the breakup of European empires externally. These are often presented as separate issues, each with their own history, but what if they were all connected by a framework that requires us to address empire, 
nationalism and minority rights together. This would, as I'll go on to argue in the talk, further challenge the methodological priority that's given to the nation within the social sciences and within politics more generally. And it would demonstrate its fictional character. But for now, that is work that for me at least, lies in the future. To return to today's lecture, I want to start with an episode from last year that highlights the multifaceted and complex nature of the issues that I wish to address. The question of German reparations to Namibia. I'll follow this with a discussion of the place of the nation within social science research and the public imaginary. And I'll end with a call for a better understanding of our colonial past to inform our understandings of the present and why this matters for Europe and the world more broadly. 2004 marked the 100th anniversary of the planned and officially sanctioned attempted extermination of the Herrera Nama people in German Southwest Africa, now Namibia. The anniversary was marked by increased prominence given to calls by the Herrera Nama people for restorative justice and for reparations. In May 2021, 117 years after the events, the German government agreed to a gesture of reconciliation with the Namibian government. This gesture fell far short of the reparations that were being called for. Indeed, Germany explicitly refused to use the language of reparations and instead offered 1.1 billion euros over 30 years in aid and not compensation. This sum doesn't exceed the amount that Germany already provides to Namibia in development aid. And Germany's framing of the issues as set out by its foreign affairs minister, Heiko Maas, has also been regarded as deeply problematic. Maas stated, and I quote, we will now officially call these events what they are from today's perspective, a genocide. However, a former Namibian cabinet minister, Kazinambo Kazinambo, questioned what was meant from today's perspective and asked, and I quote, what about yesteryear's perspective when the atrocities happened? The long-standing failure to acknowledge the events and the refusal now to use the language of reparations has meant that for many, Germany's gesture of reconciliation has rung hollow. Activists such as Laidlow Peringanda have argued that the offer of development aid does not address the historic loss of lands suffered by the population or offer any support for the descendants of those who had to go into exile after the events and now live in other countries. One of the key issues here is that while Germany may believe that it is acting properly in seeking to draw a line under a difficult history, for many Namibians, that history is not simply in the past. It continues to shape the present in quite profound ways. As such, the drawing of any line would need first to recognize the problematic nature of the events as they happened, the ensuing refusal to recognize the atrocities or to take responsibility for them, as well as to address contemporary concerns about the patterns of inequality that were established during colonial times. Most of the arable land in Namibia, for example, continues to be owned by Germans and by people of German and European descent. As Henning Melber argues, and I quote, the current distribution of privately owned land is a constant reminder that colonialism did not end with independence. In this way, colonial land dispossession which continues to structure inequalities within Namibia and between Namibia and Germany, also needs to be addressed in any project of reconciliation. 
This, however, doesn't seem to be part of the current conversation. The failure of Germany to adequately reckon with the ways in which its colonial history has shaped it is not peculiar to Germany. It's the common condition of all countries involved in the European colonial project. I began with this example to draw attention to the broader argument and can, of course, discuss similar histories and processes from across the continent. And I hope you will ask me about those in the discussion. It is precisely the disjunct between, on the one hand, Europe regarding colonial history as the past and of little consequence to understandings in the present, and on the other hand, formerly colonized countries and populations living with the ongoing legacies of that past as a present reality that motivates this presentation. In arguing for a decolonial project for Europe, I argue that this would be a project that acknowledges Europe's past as one largely constituted by its colonial activities and which seeks to rethink Europe and its contemporary relations to the rest of the world on that basis. Of course, another question which has come to greater prominence over the last month concerns the legacies of empires within Europe and not simply empires of Europe. With this in mind, I argue for the need to shift from a Habermasian idea of Europe exemplifying an unfinished project of modernity to following Nelson Maldonado Torres of an understanding of Europe's unfinished project of decolonization or in terms of the example I just gave, to shift from understandings of development and aid, which are really about one's own moral sensibility, to an understanding of reparations, which are about acknowledging historic wrongs and accounting for them. The shift from a language of humanitarianism to one of reparations would also enable us to more appropriately navigate the complex questions of to whom we owe our assistance, such that it is not only or primarily done in terms of those who look like us, but rather in terms of accounting for the obligations that emerge from the histories that connect us. Where we start from and which histories we acknowledge when we do so profoundly shapes our understandings. And here today as elsewhere, I seek to make the case for why history matters in the social sciences and why more specifically understanding our colonial past is necessary for understanding who we are in terms of the pressing political issues that face us. When we look at standard histories of the emergence of the state within Europe, there's a tendency to regard 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, as central to the emergence and consolidation of the idea of national sovereignty and the political equality of states. This treaty brought an end to the 30 years war between Protestant and Catholic powers in Europe, and it assigned each state exclusive authority within its territorial boundaries. The key issue, however, is that in subsequent centuries, European states did not simply exercise their sovereignty within the territorial boundaries of the national state. They also exerted power and violence over territories and populations elsewhere. Sovereignty was only to be respected in relation to other European powers and was not regarded as to encounters with peoples and lands beyond Europe. Indeed, as Anthony Angie argues, the doctrine of sovereignty was itself explicitly a statement of the relation among European powers and allowed the exercise of sovereignty over non-European others as an expression of that sovereignty. 
This explicitly legitimizes for Europeans the terms of an imperialism that would incorporate the non-European world into the ambit of European powers as a right to colonize, at the same time as proclaiming their own sovereignty to be inviolable. One of the issues at stake here is that core European states are understood as having a theoretical and conceptual integrity as nation states, and what happens beyond their borders is not regarded as important to the approaches developed upon reflection of their ostensibly domestic activities. Such accounts rest on the misunderstanding of these states as being nations and having empires, instead of more properly understanding them as being imperial states. To understand them as imperial states would be to bring within a common frame of analysis events and processes that are otherwise incorrectly disaggregated. It would be to recognize the colonial processes upon which subsequent developments depended, and indeed to understand the constitutive nature of colonialism to states within Europe and ultimately to Europe itself. Not to do so is to reproduce an epistemology of separation and rupture that has no basis in historical evidence and yet does much to perpetuate a politics of division and resentment in the present, as I'll go on to discuss. European colonialism was a collective and individual endeavor. This is not to suggest that it was the same across the continent, but rather that there were varieties of colonialism which overlapped and intersected over time to create the European colonial project. While the idea of Lebensraum was explicitly articulated in Germany in the late 19th century, expansionist policies for land and territory for one's own citizens had been central to the European colonial project for much longer. It was a project that was carried out by states, for example, Spain, Portugal, Britain, France, Germany. It was carried out by trading companies in association with states, for example, the English East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, and so on. It was carried out by heads of state, for example, Leopold, King of the Belgians. And it was carried out by individuals and communities from populations across Europe, the latter through what 19th century German advocates called emigrationist colonialism. It was also, following the work of Pierre Hansen and Stefan Jonsson, carried out by the project of European Union itself. While not all European countries succeeded in becoming empires, nearly all of them made the attempt, such that the last quarter of the 19th century, for example, was characterized as a scramble for Africa. Here, European powers sought to divide up the continent of Africa among themselves, that is between the UK, France, Portugal, Germany, Belgium, Italy, and Spain. Further, as I suggested, European populations from across the continent were involved in emigrationist colonialism. The population movements from Europe to the New World and beyond coalesced over four centuries into a phenomenon that was markedly different from other more quotidian movements and encounters. And this is because European movement was linked to colonial settlement, which was central to the displacement, dispossession, and elimination of populations across the globe. Across the 19th century, for example, over 60 million Europeans left their countries of origin to make new lives and livelihoods for themselves on lands that were inhabited by others. 
the perceived necessity of land and resources for one's own population was the driver of a colonial expansion that dispossessed and eliminated populations both across the world and within Europe. Current hostility towards those who seek to come to Europe arises from within those same ideological frames. Within the metropole, this land is considered to be our land and not for sharing with others. Within settler colonies, this land is our land because we took it from others and made it our own. This is generally called progress as lower forms of society are replaced by the higher form of modern society. Just as people come to be organized into lower and higher races to justify both domination and replacement. There is a failure within our standard historical accounts to acknowledge these long-standing colonial connections and the ways in which they have both organized along lines of domination and oppression and have been hierarchically constructed. This is particularly the case in terms of thinking about the ways in which race comes to define and to provide the justification for the hierarchies and inequalities created through colonialism and which continue to structure both academic and public debates. We recently witnessed this in one of its starkest forms with the unconditional welcome given to Ukrainian refugees versus the treatment of darker refugees, both those coming also from Ukraine, whether international students or people from the Roma community, and those then coming from elsewhere, for example, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and other such places. These issues are central to questions of legitimacy and related fears of white replacement that are gaining traction across Europe today. Not just on the right, unfortunately, but also from figures ostensibly associated with the left. The German movement Aufstehen, for example, was set up to counter the message of the right-wing alternative for Germany with what they call attrition for Germany. This involves arguing against the use of national taxes to aid migrants and refugees, something that is presented by one of its key proponents, Wolfgang Strake, as a quote, morally obligatory expropriation. And as he goes on to argue, it is necessary to, and I quote, barricade the remaining territory of the welfare state against the invaders. And here the invaders are refugees. In this way, such commentators replicate rather than counter the rhetoric of the AFD, which sees an irreconcilable tension between what are presented as economic migrants, invaders, and social welfare for the people, that is national citizens. The fundamental assumption here is that the national patrimony that is available for distribution is precisely that, national. That is, it is wealth that has been generated through the activities of national citizens over time and whose use and distribution ought to be regulated for the people properly understood, whose contributions and efforts it is said to represent. In a similar vein, the economist Branko Milanovic argues for the necessity of protecting the citizenship premium of nationals against the inward movement of migrants from poorer parts of the world. This is because he states rich countries accumulate wealth and transmit it, and I quote, along with many other advantages to the next generations of their citizens. We take it as normal, he continues, that there is a transmission of collectively acquired wealth over generations within the same nation and for the enjoyment of its national citizens. The failure to acknowledge the colonial histories that have made possible the wealth of European nations 
is precisely what enables and drives this politics of resentment and division. The violence of imperial rule and colonial settlement disappears from histories of the nation happening as it does outside the borders of the national state, at the same time as arguments about national sovereignty are used to securitize borders in the present against these invaders. It is this long-standing association between an understanding of one's own citizens or subjects and a sense of entitlement to land occupied by others, as well as claims that Europe is itself unable to sustain the presence of others that aligns colonialism with 20th century fascism with contemporary European politics. What is needed to combat this is to use Prasenjit Dwara's resonant phrase to rescue history from the nation. The decolonization of Europe would require Europe to take its colonial history seriously. And this would require a methodological reconfiguration as much as a substantive one. The problem, as I have suggested, rests in part in the prevalent notion of European states being nation states having empires, instead of more appropriately understanding what we call nation states as being imperial states, that is, empires. This is important because much European scholarship, or within much European scholarship, the question of the legitimacy of political rule is primarily discussed in terms of the nation. Since colonization and the establishment of imperial rule over others cannot be legitimated through such a discourse, it's usually evaded as a matter of relevant concern. In this way, scholars believe that it's possible to tell the histories of European states in national terms, and then to tell the histories of Europe in terms of the aggregation of these national histories. And yet these histories spilled over their retrospectively ascribed boundaries, and not to acknowledge this, is also to fail to acknowledge the violence and domination associated with that spillage. Europe is the wealthiest continent on the planet, and its wealth is an inheritance that derives from the very same historical processes that have left other places poor. Formal decolonization may have reduced the flow of wealth from elsewhere to Europe, but it has neither stopped it altogether and nor has there been any reparation for the earlier histories of domination, oppression, and extraction. As such, decolonizing Europe requires both epistemological justice and material reparations. Epistemological justice involves recognition of the knowledge claims of others in terms both of respect and reconstructive response and it emerges from the perspective of connected sociologies that I've elaborated elsewhere. Material reparations would require to be worked through collectively, all the while taking heed of M.A. Césaire's injunction that, and I quote, there are sins for which no one has the power to make amends and which can never be fully expiated. If we cannot fully expiate them, what could we nonetheless do? The inequalities which disfigure the world, which disfigure the world we share in common, can only be addressed through acknowledging the histories that have produced them, as well as the historiographies that have obscured them. Across the political spectrum, as I've indicated, scholars have been presenting arguments about the demise of the welfare state 
and the rise of neoliberalism, understood as a consequence of racialized inward migration to Europe, which they suggest have contributed to the breakdown of the national and class solidarities that are necessary to the maintenance of social democracy. In recent work, I have taken issue with such narratives, and I have argued for a reconstructive understanding that sees colonialism as constitutive of the welfare state. This reconstruction opens up the space to understand what is presented as the patrimony of European societies to be properly understood as the appropriation of the resources of colonized others to the benefit of national populations in Europe. With the demise of empire in the late 20th century, it's no surprise that the welfare state is itself in question. While decolonization involved no reparation to the previous colonial drain, it did, as I mentioned, reduce the flow of wealth with consequences for welfare state finances and the fiscal crisis that they enter, even if that relation goes unrecognized within the standard literature. Acknowledging the colonial context of what is presented as our national patrimony could facilitate the generation of more extensive solidarities and a post-colonial reparative and redistributive politics that would be to the benefit of all of us. The question that remains is whether all of us want us all to live well. Calling for a decolonial Europe is to call for a Europe that recognizes the significance of its colonial histories to its contemporary configuration. It's a call for both acknowledgement and address of those colonial histories. To return to the example with which I started, that of the calls by the Herrera and Arma people for reparations, it would be to recognize the extent to which Germany and German descended people continue to benefit from the structures of colonialism in terms of ongoing land ownership and the material processes of production and extraction that's associated with this. Similar questions, of course, apply to other empires of Europe. Reparations is not about addressing a past wrong. The past is the past. It's about making right contemporary inequalities that are the legacies of those past wrongs. It would be to grapple with the ideologies of private property that dominate our thinking and our policy initiatives, and to find a different language through which to address the issues, where the focus is on the address of the issues and not the language. Instead of Fortress Europe, which reproduces the language, imagery, ideologies, and policies of colonial Europe, Perhaps we could begin to imagine a European commons, a commons committed to the address of enduring inequality, committed to repair and to reparations, committed, that is, to a world that works for all of us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the German Historical Institute London podcast. Follow us on social media and check our website to keep up to date with new episodes.